Welcome to the latest edition of the UK Basketball Hub podcast. I'm Tom Lane for your series, taking us through lockdown. In this edition, we speak to legendary Glasgow Rocks coach and player Sterling Davis. He also played for the Sheffield Sharks and the Brighton Bears, as well as the London Towers as well. And also under Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, to find out why, you have to listen to this podcast. Uh, here's how we got into the sport, first of all. I was pretty much born into it. My dad was a basketball coach. He coached basketball for 25 years in, in the high school levels. And in, in, um, it started out in Arkansas in a small town called, well, it's a city. One of the, uh, it's a major city in Arkansas, but Arkansas is not a big state. But it was called Fort Smith, Arkansas, that we moved. So he was a coach there. He coached basketball and football and American football is that. And then uh, we moved to Dallas and uh, he continued his coaching career there. So it's always been around for me and I got brothers and a sister. We all played. So it was something that kind of was embedded in us from a young age. Um, when did you start getting into basketball more, I guess, on a, on a career level? I believe that you, you played at Tulane University, obviously coming through the NCAA level. Yeah, yeah. So I um so after my four years of school and my four years of high school, I did I signed to go to Tulane University in New Orleans. Um, after my last season at Tulane, to be honest with you, I was at the stage where, you know, I kind of felt a little burned out with basketball as a whole. I was in the process of, of kind of moving on to the next part of my career. I got my degree from Tulane, which is a Tulane's a very good school, very known for its education. And, and education was a big part of my background growing up. My dad was in education. And my grandmother was in education. And by the end of it, my, my dad was actually an administrator or a, a head teacher, as you would call it here. But yeah, so, um, so that was kind of a big influence on me going to uh, picking the school that I did pick. But after the four years, as I said before, I got to the stage where wasn't sure if I wanted to continue to play. I knew at the time I had a decent college career, but I don't, it was not at the level where I was um, getting a lot of attention from the NBA or anything like that. So my natural thing was to think about, you know, what am I going to do next as far as my career path is concerned? Um, I got my degree in mass media and business. So, um, so I did finish my degree in four years with that. So I was, I was kind of hunting down the next thing to do. Then it just so happened an agent, I, I had no idea about this, but he followed me all through my college career. And he's kind of the one that kind of introduced me to a life of basketball overseas. And it was something that I'd heard of before. I had a cousin uh, who played in Spain uh, some years ago, but he was a little bit older than me. So, you know, I didn't really pay much attention to it at the time, but, uh, but that is all I'd heard of it. So uh, he kind of gave me some insight as to kind of how it worked and things like that. And then from there, it was just a case of um, speaking to with my father and, and, and my mother and, and the whole family, to be honest, and just kind of going from there and making a decision to go start overseas. And, and I started my career in South America and Uruguay. And uh, that, was a, that was definitely an eye-opening experience for me, for sure. You obviously go to, to South America. What's it like to, to move to, to that part of the world on, on a basketball level and also, I guess, on, on a personal level? Yeah, so at the time, I think it was about um, the year 2000. At the time, South America was very much a third world country. So now, keep in mind, I had never left the States whatsoever. I had no intention of leaving the States. That was not something that I wanted to do whatsoever. And so um, when it came to that, it was, yeah, it was eye-opening for sure. I mean, just, I can just remember getting off of the plane. And as I said before, 
I had been in the States all my life. And so it was different to get off of a plane, get, and we actually getting off the plane on the runway. We, we're getting off the plane on the runway. And that was something I had never experienced in my life at the time either, just because you know, in the States, you got the, you got the walkways that connect you to the airport, things like that. So at the time, I thought it was strange. I know it's pretty common, especially in this country, but I'd never seen anything like that. And then uh, just the size of the, the sheer size of the airport. I mean, literally, it looked like a, like a, a, a mini shopping mall, but I, I'm not meaning like a, like a, a major mall by any means. I mean, just like a little, a little precinct almost. And, and so, so, yeah, so it was, it was definitely different. Language was a big thing. They, I didn't speak Spanish great whatsoever. I took a couple of years of Spanish in high school, but when you're in high school, you don't pay attention to that. You know, I, I remember knowing hello and goodbye pretty much, and that was it. So I had no idea. I was basically going into uncharted territory, so no idea what I was, what I was getting myself into. Didn't, didn't necessarily know who to look for when I landed, and um, I've been speaking to people, but at the time, this was before... I wouldn't say the internet was huge by any means at the time. There definitely wasn't any video calling or anything like that. So, yeah, it was a lot of uncertainty, you know. And so it was just about putting my trust in, in, in the situation and, and what that my agent had put me in at the time and, and trying to make the best of it. How difficult was it to, when you first started playing basketball there with that sort of communication issue? Uh, you mentioned you didn't really speak the language. I imagine uh, for a while your, your, your training sessions and things like that were quite difficult. Yeah, they were. So, but the thing was, when I got there, uh, my team actually, they arranged for an interpreter to be with me. So I had this lady, her name was Thelma. I'll never forget her. Thelma, her job was to basically escort me everywhere I went, help me to get around, help me to communicate, things like that. So Thelma came and picked me up to take me to practice. She would drop me off after practice. She would take me to get food. She did everything. I mean, like, it was, it was like, she she was there to kind of be my guide almost while I got when I got over there. So from that perspective, it really helped me quite a bit to be honest with you. Because as we are you know going through this process, she's actually teaching me. She's teaching me the language as as like in real life. So and it's just basic things. Whatever people are coming to me with, you know, I'm I'm, I'm having to get some kind of interpretation as to what they're saying, but. I'm at the same time I'm learning because I'm saying, you know, what did they say? She's telling me, I'm telling them back. So it's a lot of back and forth, but it's listening um, as well as um, as time went on, it started being usage. So she did teach me quite a bit. And by the time I left South America, I was almost fluent in Spanish. Now I haven't used it in a long, a long time. So I, I've lost a lot of it. Some of it does come back when I do go to Spanish speaking countries, but, but for the most part, yeah, I mean, it was, it was much sharper uh, when I was there. As far as uh, the basketball side of it, it was difficult at times, but I, I can remember at the time, for the most part, the coaches didn't say a lot to the Americans. Now, I was in a place called uh, Montevideo, beautiful city, uh, right on the beach. It was very much a, a vacation destination for South Americans, not so much for the world, but, uh, but yeah, people came from all over the country to come to this part because it was right there on the coast, beautiful place. But, but when I was there, as I said before, um, I was the only American on my team, okay? So this, this, this league that I was in, the whole league for the most part was within a 50-mile a radius. So you're not traveling. There's not a whole lot of travel involved, things like that. Every team had an American, and in, in, in the city that I was in, there was about four or five different teams. So, so from that perspective, 
you did have some guys around who were kind of from back home and things like that. It just so happened that um, when I was there, we ended up playing in a tournament. It's called the Sword American Tournament. What that was is um, it was a tournament uh, where you, it would allow you during this tournament only to have two imports. And at the time, uh, one of my best friends in high school, or my best friend in high school, his name was Bill, uh, he didn't have a job. He wanted to play basketball overseas. He didn't have a job. It just so happened they asked me if I knew of anyone. I said, of course. And then that's when I brought him over. He ended up playing very well. And he played so well that he was actually, um, they, he actually got a job off of the tournament that we played. So I ended up having my best friend right there in the city where I was. So that aspect of it, that worked out well for me. So I was happy about that. But as I said before, as far as the coaching was concerned, they really left you alone for the most part. Your job was there, it was, it was to score. And that was it. I mean, of course, you had to play defense and things like that. But uh, some of my teammates, because they grew up in a basketball culture, they could, they could speak the language to some extent, whether it's from different Americans coming in, things like that. But it definitely, they did definitely have um, uh, different people coming in. So, so they could help me translate if necessary, or the coach would use them automatically. So I, I never looked around and felt like the language barrier between myself and the coach was something that was, uh, was a, a distraction by no means. Do you know what, what happened to, to Thelma when you left? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, you know, and I, um, and I, I'm, assuming, I'm sure we'll get to this in a second, but anytime I'm, so I do public speaking now, and anytime I'm doing these public speaking events and things like that, I always use Thelma. I had enough of Thelma, man. By the time I left, I was, I was ready to lose her. And it got to the stage where I felt like she was just popping out the closet at the middle of the night. She wasn't really, but it just seemed like that. It was just, Thelma was everywhere. So by the end of it, I was pretty fluent, and so I didn't really need her anymore, but it was just trying to find a way of, of, of telling her that. Or tell, and so I ended, up, I ended up telling the team that, listen, I think I'm okay on my own, and so I got them to kind of relay the message, but it didn't stop Thelma. It didn't stop her. I'm going to be honest with you, man. She was still around, but no, she was a good lady, but yeah, it was time to let her go when it was. That's a brilliant story. Um, <laughs> um, you, you went to, to Argentina next, I believe. How, how did that come about? And what was that, that transition like? Yeah, so, um, so Argentina, basically the, the, the season in South America, in, in, uh, in Montevideo, it went for about six, seven months or so. Argentina's season went longer. So um, when I came to the end of my season in, in, uh, in Uruguay, that's how they call it. It's, it's Uruguay, but they call it Uruguay. When I finished my season there, I then just made that transition right over to Argentina. That's the neighbor right there next door. Argentina, very good, very good league. A lot of good talent there. At the time, Ginobili, uh, Manu Ginobili played for the Spurs. He had just left Argentina to go, where did he go? To Italy. He went to Italy right, right as I was coming in there. So um, it was some very good talent there. A lot of the teams over there, they do a lot of scouting and things like that. I think that team that I went to, it actually saw me in that Sword America tournament that I was telling you about previously. I think they saw me there. Argentina, once again, what an experience, man. It was, um, I went to a town called Wallawachu. Now I'll give you a million pounds if you can spell that. But but Wallawachu, it was one of the smallest places I've ever seen in my life. Now, I'm from Dallas. I'm a city boy. I've always been there. I like the hustle and bustle. And I get to this town, and I just couldn't believe it. Now, now I go from being the only American on my team 
to literally the only American in the town. And, and I mean, it was small. It was a small place. It was just embedded. Basketball was huge there. There was not a football team there, as in European football, per se. Uh, there wasn't a football team there. Football was huge there, of course, but, but not in the city uh, that I was. So it was all just geared around basketball. And, and everybody knew who you were in the city just because that was, that was the show. Only the, the basketball games was the show there. And, I, and I'll never forget one thing that stood out about when I went to Argentina is what blew my mind is the amount of smoke in the arenas. Now, during this time, remember this is, this was 2000 and I seem so old, but back then you could smoke in the, well, in, the, in, in, in Europe, you could smoke in the arena. So you were, you got used to playing where there's a, this haze of smoke above your head. You can just barely see the rim, but then above that, you can't see anything. So if there's a scoreboard up high, you're not going to be able to see it. I don't know how I survived that, but you, you got these plumes of smoke above you while you're playing your games. And that's one thing I remember about South America in general. But Argentina, it was at another level because I remember looking at some of my teammates after a game, smoking cigarettes. It just blew my mind. Not only that, smoking with the president of the team. That's, that was my first introduction to athletes dealing with alcohol and, and smoking at the same time. And, yeah, it was, um, it was an experience. It was fun. I had a good time there. You know, you have things like your carnival and things like that that happened, and that was interesting to see. All of these things were culture builders for me, though. I mean, I mean I'm sorry, not culture builders, but content builders and, and, and character builders and things like that, just to be able to experience things that I had never seen before. And, and they were life lessons and, 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 and opened my eyes to quite a few different things. But, yeah, no, I had a good time there. And uh, the, the, the passion that they had, that was the biggest thing for me um, that I really enjoyed. Now, it got a little crazy there. And I mean, I'm talking about fire bombs up in the stands. And if you, if you go to an away opponent and you, win, you lose the game, I'm sorry, you win the game on, a, on the away court, you're definitely having to get escorted out by police officers. I can remember on the way out, once we did get on the bus, I'll never forget my coach who did speak English at the time. He yelled out something. And then the guy who spoke English next to me he said, basically, get down in the aisle. Get down in the aisle because here comes the rocks. So um, when you lose a game, they stone your bus, you know, things like, I mean, when you win a game on the road, they stone your bus, things like that. That was definitely different right there. But, but yeah, but I mean, it's all part of the experience, all part of the journey that I've been through. And, and as I said before, the fandomonium there was just what really was impressive to me and how much they really cared. I mean, like down to the core heart about their, about their teams. And, and it, was, it was a different feel to what you get here. It's almost like how people are about football here in England or in, in, in uh, Britain. I mean, it's to the core that, they, that they're, they're, they're diehard fans. So, yeah, so that, that, that was my biggest, my biggest memories of uh, South America, and especially Argentina. What did you know or did you know anything about the kind of British basketball scene or anything about British basketball ahead of your move here? So I had um, my high school teammate. His name is Rob Brown. I'm sure most people know Rob Brown. He played for the uh, Leopards, and then he went on to play for the Towers and things like that. Well, Rob Brown was my high school teammate. And, um, and so my first year when I went to uh, South America, he, went, he came here. And so we used to work out in the summers, every summer, and things like that. And so he told me a little bit about it. I didn't know much at all. Only thing I did know is that they spoke English, and that's what I remember Rod telling me. They spoke English here. Um, he said it was so close. It's as close you're going to be to being back home. And, and so that was the biggest thing. At the time, I kind of struggled with 
Um, I just, when I was in South America, I just couldn't wait to get back home. And you have to understand, it's not, it's, it's a different time. I can remember writing letters, you know, because that was what the communication was. There was no free phone calls across the world, like your I, I, I mean, your um, WhatsApp or things like that. So uh, during the time, it was very expensive to call home. I remember my team in South America, they gave me a, a, a mobile phone. It did have international calls, but they limited me to once a month. I could call and, and speak to the family. So, so yeah, I remember letter writing and things like that. So I just couldn't wait to get back home because I felt like I was just missing so much. This, these days, the world is so connected. Wherever you go, you feel like you're in the loop as to what's going on. You can talk to whoever you like, things like that. But it was different back then. So I didn't know a lot. So the, the, the number one appealing thing that Rod told me at the time was that they spoke English. And, and uh, I remember him just saying, like, listen, it's, just, it's not much different from, from being back home. So from that perspective, that kind of made me a little bit more curious more than anything else. What was it like? You talked about obviously going to South America and experiencing that sort of culture. To what extent was moving to the, the British League a sort of culture shock in maybe a different way? Yeah. When I, I can remember coming from South America, coming over here, I remember watching, watching my first game because um, I think my first game that I watched, we, there was a, a, it was like a shootout. Birmingham used to hold, a, they used to host a, like a preseason tournament. And I remember walking in the gym and I, I can't remember who was playing, but it was just a completely different game. It was so fast paced. The ball alone was different. It reminded, I was like, this is Harlem Globetrotters ball because I'd never seen any, I had never seen somebody actually play a game with these like checkered balls. And so, uh, but I just remember, yeah, it was very uh, fast paced. It was a lot less uh, structure um, and more about you know, just getting up and down the floor, things like that. So that was my first interpretation or that was my first thought. Uh, just like this is just a different game, you know. I thought it was a lot of athleticism. As a matter of fact, it seems like I think the first game that I watched, John McCord was playing. He was playing somebody. But I just remember him because I remember thinking, man, this guy is extremely skinny. And he's a four or five guy, but he's pretty athletic, you know. So I didn't know anybody at the time, but – that was the first game that I watched. So it was just different because uh, South America, there was a lot of structure. You did have, um, it was more of a half court game than, than more, you know, getting up and down. So uh, no, I just thought it was a little, it was just different. Well, I believe your, your first team in the, in the UK was the Brighton Bears and you played under a, a certain coach, uh, Nick Nurse. Uh, what was he like as a coach? I'm not, I'm not by any means surprised Nick is where he is now. I'm, and I mean by no means. And I say that not because of his, uh, his X's and O's and tactics and things like that. No, he's, he's 100% good at that. But Nick was the consummate and, and, and ultimate player, um, player's coach. He really knew how to get the best out of, uh, out of players. And he did the way he, he kind of uh, just interacted and built, built relationships with each, each individual guy. He knew when to get serious. He knew when to joke. It seemed like his timing was impeccable with things like that. When you, when you have that, that is so important in any, any kind of successes that you have. And I think that will take you a long way in itself. The X's and O's are great, but you've got to have these relationships. And I think Nick had a way of making everybody feel important. He definitely motivated you. He wanted, you wanted to win. You wanted to win for him. You didn't want to let him down. And, um, and, um, and that was from the beginning, you know, and I, I, I can remember at times I used to think like 
Nick, why are you why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you letting things like this go through and things like that based off of teammates and 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 their behaviors and and stuff that I didn't necessarily agree with. I now I do. Now that I've been in that position, I understand where he was coming from. It used to bother me at the time, but I completely understand where it is, where it comes from now. But but no, Nick was um I always liked Nick, you know, even from his recruit from speaking to him, Brighton. Um, I really like Brighton. Brighton's one of my favorite places that I've played ever. You know, I'm, I've, I've, I like I like the water. I like being down on the coast. But then at the same time, it was 40 minutes from London, and that was so I was getting the best of both worlds from that perspective. So, uh, but yeah, no, I really enjoyed playing for Nick, and I'm by no means he he'll always go down as one of my favorite coaches ever um, that I've ever played for, just because of, of of the type of person he was. It's been, I think. 14 years since the, the Brighton Bears were in existence. I imagine some people who listen to this might not have, have followed the Brighton Bears or might not have even been around when they were around. What was the team, the city, and I guess the support like for the Brighton Bears? Well, listen, that's, once again, I'm blank. So Brighton, we used to get, we used to get some of the biggest crowd, crowds I've seen in the BBL, without a doubt. We used to play at the Brighton Center. I think the Bright Center Hill, about 4,500 people, 5,000, something like that. And we used to consistently get numbers around that. Now, I'm not saying we'll make these are ticket sales at the gate. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But as far as getting people in the stands and on those seats, I, to this day, I still say that, that on a consistent basis, Brighton was one of the teams that always did that. Now, we had two locations at the time. We played at the Brighton Center, which was right there down on the, um, on the beach, on the seafront. We also played in Burgess Hill. It's a place called the Triangle. The Triangle, it didn't draw as big a crowd. It was still decent, but we kind of split between the two. You know, I, once again, I attribute a lot of, of, of that as far as people in the stands. Nick was a big part of that. By any means necessary, Nick would do whatever it took and what he had to do to, to create this, this, this uh, show. And it was that. I think Brighton was one of the first teams to actually put, to me, to put on a show. The cheerleaders, the different competitions. I remember Randy Duck, he played with me. And I think we were one of the first teams to have the duck toss. As a matter of fact, you know, I think at the time, well, I thought anyway, it was literally named after Randy Duck. I'm not sure if that's the case, but, but, uh, but yeah, there was a lot of different things to bring these people in. A lot of kids, schools, and, 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 and people. I can remember I would get more free game passes than I could give away, and this was every game. As a matter of fact, the free game passes that we had, we didn't, they didn't have to renew. They were just a free game, so we could have a stack of them, um, and we could always give those out. We used to always do that. Uh, we would just, uh, wherever we were, if we had them on us, we would just give out free tickets. And because and, it was just, I think at the time, the number one priority was, and I think the way Nick and, and, and the owner, their main number one goal was just to get people in. And after that, then hopefully that'll draw them to come back again. So I understood where they were coming from. I can understand the business aspect of that. And I think that's what it was about. But, uh, but yeah, we just had endless amounts of these, these free passes that we could just give away at any, at any point. They were not specific to a game. It was literally just a pass. So it just say free. And, it, and so you could, I could give one person 20 of them. And, and, but, but I think at the time, as I said before, probably was not the best, the best plan economically as far as financial um, ramifications of it. But as far as just trying to create this show, 
create a professional atmosphere, fill this, this, this plate, the Brighton Center, which was, I thought it was a nice place. It was really a concert venue, but it worked. It worked well, and, and, and they did a good job of, of, of filling it up. Um, I, I really enjoyed it, and I thought it was great. I thought it was great. There wasn't a lot going on at Bright- in Brighton at the time. You had Brighton Albion Football Club at the time, but at this time, they were like third or fourth division, so they weren't in a premiership. I'm not sure if they are this year or not, but I know they have had their time there. Basketball was a big part of it. It wasn't a lot else to do. I can remember people coming from London to come down and watch the games, things like that. So, no, it was a great atmosphere. It, it became, and I attribute that a lot to Nick um, and the work. He, he worked a lot. He worked a lot. But, uh, but yeah, he, he created this, this, um, this culture down there for basketball. And, and it was great for us as players, for sure. We enjoyed it. And I believe in, in your second season, uh, Brighton won the Cup. What do you remember about that, that run and, that, and that, that year? Yeah, no, once again, we, we, we always stay competitive. We always stay competitive from year to year. That year we won the Cup. Once again, we had some very good key pieces on the team. Um, shout out to Wilbur Johnson. That's my guy right there. And I remember he got the MVP of that game. He really stepped up big in that one. Guys like Mike Brown. Of course, Randy Duck, the aforementioned Randy Duck, and and um, and you know guys like Errol Seaman, all these guys, they they played their they played their roles well, and we got the job done with it. And I think it was um it was just a case of, you know, us 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 coming together and Nick doing what he does, and, and he's got he got us motivated, and I think that was the beginning of Nick really solidifying himself with just uh, just his step and his first step on on what things were to come for him, but. Uh, but no, it felt good. Of course, it's, it's a great feeling to win that. Uh, it's a long time ago. It's a lot of things that some ins and outs of it that you can't remember. But it was, yeah, no, it was, it was a great experience. I enjoyed it, and, and I was happy for the guys. We had a good group of guys. There was never any ego problems or anything like that with any of us, and and, and it was just about us winning. And so, from that perspective, it was great. We enjoyed it. Uh, how did your time with Brighton come to an end? And I believe you went to where you stayed in, uh, London. Yeah, so basically what happened was after my last year in, in, in Brighton, that was, so that was the year that I was runner-up MVP of the league to Kenny Gregory. K- Kenny Gregory picked me for MVP of the league that year. So what happened was I decided it was time for me to kind of move somewhere else. And, and so I had an I had a, a offer to go to Spain. Um, and the deal was done. I was on my way, and then it just kind of fell through. The offer fell through. And so uh, what happened was I ended up going to London with uh, Robbie Pierce. So, um, so yeah, so it wasn't – it wasn't – it was just a case of um, – it was just time for me. I felt like it was time for me to move on to something else. I had all, I'd also just played – that year I played in the USBL, United States Basketball League, and that's where Kareem – Abdul-Jabbar coached me. Um, Randy Duck also played on my team that year in the USBL. We played for the Oklahoma City, uh, Oklahoma City Storm was the name of the team. We ended up winning the USBL that year too. So uh, all of that, my stock had kind of gotten a little bit higher and things like that. So opportunities came where I was supposed to, you know, financially it was going to benefit me to move elsewhere. So kind of that's how my my, my breakup ended with, with Brighton. By no means was it any, it was hard to do because I love Brighton. To this day, I still love it. Professionally, I thought that was the best move for me at the time. What was it like playing uh, under uh, Kareem? <laughs> that was, uh, it was, a, it was, it was, a, it was an incredible experience, more so 
it's Kareem, man. That's that's that, that, first of all, it's Kareem. You gotta understand, we were we were in Oklahoma City. To this day, it just blows my mind. Now, now at the time, Oklahoma City, they didn't have the Oklahoma City Thunder, they didn't have anything like that. So Oklahoma City is just Oklahoma City, just this little country town. And and so it just blew my mind just to think like Kareem is actually living in Oklahoma City in a hotel and 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 he's my coach. So that in itself just kind of just I was just like this is just crazy. Now that eventually once you got past that aspect of it, Kareem was funny. He was funny as a coach. He didn't he didn't say a lot. He wasn't over uh, emotional, over dramatic by any means. He had assistant coaches for that. We had some assistant coaches who who did all the cussing that he needed to do, all the screaming that he needed to do. You know what I remember about Kareem as a coach is trying to guard his hook shot, and I kid you not. That's that's the biggest thing that I remember is just how amazing, how amazingly impossible it is to block that hook shot. First of all, the, the, he's, he's seven foot, seven one or whatever it is, and then his arms are about seven one each, and and just to see the release on where the hook shot. That, that's, that, that's one of the highlights of my life to say that, listen, I have guarded Kareem's hook shot, and it is impossible. That's, that's, they always say that's the impossible shot uh, to block, and it is. Just the, where, the release of it and, and things like that. So as you can see, the coaching aspect of it was not a, a, a benchmark in Kareem and myself's career. Now, we won. We won a championship. We had a good team, though. We had a very good team. We had some high-level European players. We had a couple of NBA players on our team, too. Actually, a guy named Albert White, who played with me in Brighton, I think it was my second year there, he will, he also played with, with us uh, on this team. So we had a very good team. But, uh, but no, Kareem, uh, once, I, I, can, I, I always tell the story any chance, any chance I get. When you're playing in the USBL, you're traveling to a lot of very small towns, small towns in Kansas, small towns in Florida. It can be uh, Oklahoma. You know, it's a lot of – so we, there were some East Coast teams, some West Coast teams. We would go up to New York, but it wasn't necessarily New York City. It was all these small towns. So I don't know how, but we could be in Chesapeake, Kansas, for instance, and, and, and we stopped on the way. On the way, we're riding in buses now. We're on the bus. And Kareem, he was on the bus too. We stopped in these small country towns uh, to get a bite to eat. Somehow, I have no idea, but there was, we, there was always people, when we stopped to get some food, there would always be people there waiting to get Kareem's autograph. Now, I have no idea how they knew where we were going to stop and that he was on this bus or whatever. But this, no, it didn't happen every single time. But there was, there was some places we stopped, and they were there. And, I, and, and the thing was, they didn't just have, like, a, a random piece of paper. These people had balls. They had shoes. Like, they knew we were going to be there. It always blew my mind how they knew that. But anyway, Kareem, he was not the most sociable person. And so I can never – I always remember it was like a, a team joke. We would, always get off the, uh, we would always get off the bus first. Kareem sat in the front, or he sometimes he would get off first. But if we saw – somebody standing at the at the stop or they're st standing there waiting for Kareem. We always knew more than likely Kareem was going to say no. And Kareem would get off of the bus. They would sit there. They would have the pen and the ball ready. And he would put up that big five foot long finger and just say no and keep walking in. We would just die laughing. It was always hilarious. And so uh, we always enjoyed 
doing that. But, you know, there was times where we would go to, for instance, a small burger spot and, and sit down and eat in there. People, he, I, and I get it, people, he couldn't eat. He, he, the people were just constantly hounding him and they had no respect for the fact that the guy was in the middle of taking a bite or his hands were just covered in ketchup or whatever it was. And so people just didn't care. So I know, I know he's kind of built up this kind of wall to say, listen, I, I, I can't do it anymore. I did it for long enough. And he, when I tell you he was done with it, he was done with it. I mean, it was to the point when I, before, before we finished, I did get a, me and, I got a picture with Kareem. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it because I knew how Kareem was. Kareem was a cool guy. It was no problems with him. We joked around. We talked about different things. But, but I remember my dad, right before one of our final games, we were in the playoffs in the USBL. My dad was like, listen, I want to get a picture with me, you, and Kareem. Now, you got to understand, this was like the Michael Jordan in my dad's era. So he was extremely, like, in awe of this guy. And so I was like, Dad, listen, you don't want to bark down that tree. Kareem does not do this with anybody. He will tell you no quick. I'm telling you now. So basically, my dad was like, no, we're we doing this. And so I went in there and talked to him. I was like, listen, Kareem, listen, buddy. My dad wants to take a picture with you. Can, can we do this? He was like, yeah, of course. Come on in. So we got a picture with him. And, uh, and, and my dad has it up in his house up to this date. And that was one of the highlights. But but Kareem was, um, yeah, no, he was a he he's a he's a legend for sure. And and he won a championship with us. But 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 no, I, I can't remember him for the X's and O's aspect of it. It was more so just a, just a, the glamour of having him around. I think he was a seat filler for sure. And um, and 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 so um, I think that was that was kind of my memories of him. I imagine it's it's quite difficult to argue with a coach like that if you have any issues. Like, what do you know about the game? <laughs> How did you go from from there back to the UK? What what happened next in your career? So so basically, what happened was after my job, after the job fell through in Spain, London Towers they called my agent, said that they were interested. Now I was in at the time when my when my deal fell through. In, in Spain, my mindset, my mindset was out of the British League at the time. So when, when London called, uh, it was Robbie Pierce. I like London. London at the time, they were a good franchise. They had good backing and things like that. So yeah, so Robbie, so Robbie Pierce calls and, and I speak to him briefly and I speak to the agent. And I remember um, going there and, and, and just thinking about being, I, I liked London at the time. Uh, I really did. I really um, just, and that was just from my time in Brighton. I liked the energy about it. As I said before, I'm a city boy. And so, um, so yeah, so it just kind of happened off of the back of the fact that uh, my, my deal fell through in Spain. I'm, I'm trying to remember why that deal fell through. I think it has something to do with maybe ownership. There was a change of ownership or they were in the, the team was going through financial difficulty, something like that. But, but basically, yeah, so Robbie Pierce just got in touch with my agent and, and he got me into London. And that, that was obviously a, a shortish stay uh, with London. What, what do you remember from, from that season? I, I, that, that's the one season. That is the one season I really, I really wish I could take back. And I, and I, kind, of, I kind of regret. As I said before, mentally, my mind wasn't here, and 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 um, you know I really I was really wanting to you know go go across the continent. So my approach was not good, and I can I can hold my hands up and say that my approach was not a good on how I came in uh, mentally more than anything else. I was physically ready. I always kept myself in in pretty good shape and try to 
take my job serious. But the mental aspect of it was where um, I was not where I should have been. And that's very uncharacteristic of me because that's not really who I am as a person. But at the time, that definitely was the case. We had a, we had a very good team at the time. They put together a good group of guys and, and I can hold up and hand, I can hold my hand up and say, I didn't perform. I didn't perform as I should. Uh, you know, I think we had a guy, uh, what's his name? Ricardo Greer, uh, who went on, he had an incredible uh, career in Europe. But, but he was with us at the time. We had a guy named John Horton, who was a good big man. Uh, Rod Brown, he was on that team as well. Um, so we had a very good team that year but, that they had put together initially. But, but, uh, but as I said before, for me, mentally, for some reason, I just, I just wasn't there. And, and I wasn't performing. I wasn't performing. I came in, and I was making adjustments. I was going to come in to play the three for the London that year. And I'd been playing either the four or some five normally in this league anyway. And so uh, Robbie's idea was to move me to the three position. I can, all I remember from that time, I didn't shoot the ball well. And I, I considered myself being able to shoot the ball pretty well throughout my career, but I didn't shoot well. And, and, and as I said before, mentally, I just was not where I should have been. And for that, my performance is showed for it. And, and um, it came to the stage where, you know, uh, Robbie had to make a decision because we weren't, we weren't playing well. We weren't winning games, especially with the, with the roster that we had. And, and um, I completely understood where he was coming from just because um, I knew what potential I had and I know what I had done in the league before. And to be coming off of a, a season where I was running up MVP of the league to playing how I was at the time, it didn't correlate. And so, um, so it got to the stage to where, you know, they needed to make some changes. And I'm not sure. I think they made a couple of changes that year, but I think um, I, it definitely came to myself. And, and so they decided to go another direction. And that's what it was. Your, your next move was to Sheffield. Uh, you've obviously, in your, your first three years in the UK, spent a lot of time in the, the kind of south area, I guess mainly in London, travelling to Brighton. What was it like going to Sheffield? And, and was that sort of maybe even a difficult decision to, to move away from that sort of central area? So, so you skipped one spot in my, in my, uh, oh, in my career. <laughs> it's like any, any bio that I see, for some reason, this part of my career has been kind of like left out. But I went after, after I left uh, London, I went and played in Germany for, for Chris Finch. I played in Gießen. So that's where I went. That was my next move there. Yeah, so I, I, went, and, um, I went and played there for, uh, for the remainder of that season. What ha Gießen had a player injured. And so they needed, they needed another, they needed a roster spot. Of course, I knew Chris Finch from the league. I played against him and things like that. And so, um, so yeah, I went and played there um, in Gießen, in that little small town. And I actually played with Wilbur Johnson and also Mookie, John, Tom, John was it Thompson or Thomas from Cheshire? Uh, we all, we, we were all on the same team as well. So yeah, I played, I played, I, I, that was my, that was my move before Sheffield. Yeah, sorry. Obviously, my, my research is based on the bios that uh, on the internet. You mentioned you played for Chris Finch, uh, Nick Nurse, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. When you were playing under these coaches, obviously you went on to coach yourself. Was there stuff that you were picking up on the way that you you kind of taken with you? Oh, absolutely. I picked up a little bit from everybody. You know, I think you know from Kareem's from Kareem's perspective. I think I think it was more so the 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 mindset that you had to have to be a professional. That was that was the biggest thing that he was able to kind of, and that was just through storytelling. Kareem, he's a good storyteller, very good storyteller. He's extremely intelligent, and so 
uh, when it comes to him telling about his life experiences and things that he's going through, that is what has kind of made him stand out. That that was the that was the kind of the stamp that he's left on my on on my career from that perspective. When it comes to Nick Nurse, he taught me about relationships, kind of building relationships and what it took. Nick had to deal with some difficult players at times. You know, he had some difficult guys come through. One guy that stands out, and I love this guy to death. And he he had a he had a bad reputation, a misunderstood reputation. But he's one of my favorite teammates, and that was Rico Alderson. Rico was incre- He was an incredible teammate. He was in a, he was a a good person. He really was, and he was very much misunderstood. But when when you, when he's playing against you. That's the mindset that he has. He, you know, he's, he's got that, that, that killer instinct that, you know, when I'm playing against you, I'm going to go at you. You're not going to like me. But when you play with him, you will go to battle with him any day. And, and so Rico was not always the easiest to manage. He was, not, he was not the easiest to manage as far as from Nick's perspective was concerned. And sometimes Rico used to really bother me because of, of, of kind of every now and then off the court shenanigans and things like that. But but no, listen, I have not, I'll take Rico any day just because of one thing about him, no matter what happened throughout the week, Rico was ready to play on the weekend. And, and, and I mean, he would give it. He would give everything he had. And, of course, he was a stat filler in every aspect of it, you know. So he was the most unselfish player that I've ever played with. So I got a lot of respect for him for that. So Nick taught me, to answer your question, he taught me how to deal with guys like that. I learned a lot from him. I watched him. And at the time, I didn't understand it. But as time went on, and then as I had my as I had my own team, I I would always think back to you know kind of how Nick handled situations. Now X's and O's wise, Nick taught me the triangle offense to a T, and I mean Nick was incredible. He really studied that triangle offense, and and we ran it in Brighton, and um, and and he really did a good job of of, of teaching that, and 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 it's something I actually I incorporated in, in a few of my teams over the years, uh, the triangle offense. But but he's the one that taught that to me, so I can attribute that to him. Chris Finch, he was very much uh, he was just about X's and O's. You know, I you know I, I wouldn't say he was like a a big relationships guy. He came in, we got we practiced, and that and he left. That was pretty much how Chris Finch operated. But uh, but he's always kind of been like that. Very intelligent guy, knew a lot about the game. And so, um, so yeah, so I learned, I learned different things from different coaches and, and, and it's been something that, um, that, you know, it's kind of helped me uh, through my career for sure. Did Chris Finch play a part in your move to Sheffield or was that just a coincidence that he was your coach in Germany? Um, I, don't, I don't think he, I don't think it played a part because at the time, Peter Scannelberry was the coach there. Scans was, that's, that's my guy too. I, I, like, I, like, playing, I like playing for, uh, for coach. Scannerberry, but I don't. Not that I know of. They may have. They may have referenced uh, myself to Chris at the time, or uh, or something like that. But but no, I would. I wouldn't necessarily say so. I, Sheffield. It was appealing to me at the time because Sheffield was a good team. They were a good organization. They had some success in the league. They had some good pieces, and and I heard. I only heard good things about them. Um, I only heard good things about the team. And so, you know, I was big on trying to go to teams that had, that were professional and not only on the court, but off of the court, how, how you were taking care of things like that. And I heard good things about Sheffield and they were, they were, they were a very professional organization. And so, um, so that was kind of the lure uh, for me going there. It wasn't, I haven't always been huge on like demographics as opposed to like where I am. As a matter of fact, at the time I didn't, I didn't, it didn't even 
occur to me, like, listen, I'm moving from the south, I'm moving more towards the, 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 the north, and the weather's going to be different and things like that. Because to me at the time, the weather was terrible everywhere. It just, just rained all the time to me. But now that I've, I've spent so much time here, I can understand how the south can be better as far as quality of life and things like that than the north when it comes to, like, your weather and things like that. But, uh, but at the time, no, none of that equated to me. It was just more so about who my coach was, who, what kind of pieces were around us, and, 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 and what kind of organization it was. And so Sheffield was one that I, that I always had a respect for, back to the, you know, Lennard Stewart days, things like that. So those were one of the, the, the keys for me. And I can't remember, that, to be honest, I can't remember, you know, the process of getting to Sheffield. But, yeah, I think I just turned up, to be honest. Man. I just think I just landed there. I don't know what happened. I don't even know. I can't remember flying into Sheffield. I don't know where I flew into. It must not have been Sheffield because I'm pretty sure they don't have an airport there. But, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I, that's kind of a blur how, how I got there, to be honest. How um, was your experience with the Sharks? I believe you were there for, for around two years. How, how was that experience? And was the second year slightly more interesting? I think at that time, uh, Peter Scantlebury was, was involved with the England setup as well. Yeah, my, it, was, it was good. My life had changed at that time. So one aspect of it I left out, when I left, when I left London, I was expecting a, um, a, my little boy at the time. So I finished off the season in Germany, and then I came back to be here because my little boy was here. So that was a big part of the reason why I came back to the UK as well, because I did want <clears throat> to be close to my, my son. That was important to me. So, yeah, so at the time... Um, I was with his mother, so I was very much a I was a, I was a family man, you know. I was I was very much a family man, and it was it was it was strictly business for me at that time, to be honest with you, because it was, you know, the work didn't start for me till I got home at that time. My little boy was had just been born and things like that, so you know how it is when you got new newborns and new kids around, you're not sleeping much, and you got to find a way to kind of manage your time as it should be, and and also be able to um, uh, keep yourself. Uh, fresh to, to perform. So it, it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about being disciplined. It taught, it taught, it taught, taught to me how you can operate on a couple of hours of sleep and still be able to go out and perform, things like that. So, um, so that's, that's, that reminds me of Sheffield for the most part. The organization was great. I had no problems in Sheffield whatsoever. Yuri and Sarah, um, those guys, they, they really tried their best to take care of me and my family. And, um, and as I said before, uh, Peter Scannelberry, um, who was the co- who was coaching at the time, Pete was very much a player's coach too. Uh, he wasn't long from playing himself, so he still had that bug. He used to play with us in t- at times like that, and still play well. We looked at him as as our coach, but also um, as a as a um, a counterpart. So he we, we worked kind of alongside him and things like that. Easy to talk to, great guy. Uh, he, he did a good job of listening to us and, and anything that we needed, he would try his best for it. He fought for his players. He really did. He did. He had the England set up at the time, too. And so you got guys like Ian McKinney and Bam, those guys like that. They were playing with England. All those guys, they were, they were, they were great guys, man. I really miss all of them. But that, that, that was fine. I didn't, I didn't think it was a distraction by any means or anything like that. Um, I think I – think, he deserved it. I think he did well um, in the position, and I think it was an honor for him to be able to do it. 
you obviously spent a lot of time in Scotland in the years after that, but you've played in the BBL for a few years before you moved to Scotland. When you played the, the, the kind of Rocks franchise when you were playing for other teams, was it somewhere that you thought you could see yourself? Right, so <laughs> we got to take this in stages. When I played, when I played down south, when I played it like Brighton, I could, I would, I could never, ever see myself coming to Scotland from what I had seen. At the time, they were the Edinburgh Rocks, so they were playing at Meadowbank. And as I said before, we were playing in the Brighton Center every week, and I come up here, we play at Meadowbank, um, and and I just thought this was the. Because uh, I'm pretty sure we drove, we drove from Brighton up to Scotland and back in the same day. I'm pretty, I think, I'm, now I know we drove up here and I was thinking, this is way too far. And I didn't know what direction I was going. I didn't know, I didn't know anything, but all I, I, pre- I, I based everything around London. And so I'm like, listen, this is way too far from existence. And so I, I, I definitely couldn't see myself then. And then when I got up here, the, I will never forget, uh, the first person I spoke to was some little kid that came up to me. And he said two or three sentences, and I had no clue what the guy said. And I mean nothing. And I swore it was somebody else. Like, there's no way that this kid is speaking English. But apparently he was. And so, um, so yeah, so from that perspective, I was like, this, is, this, this place could not be for me. Now, fast forward to Sheffield. I used to play with a guy named Robert Yanders. Rob Yanis played with me in Sheffield. After Rob left Sheffield, he then moved up here to Glasgow. By this time, they had moved into Glasgow as opposed to Edinburgh. And now they moved into Brayhead Arena. So now when I get up here, see, when I was playing back then, those are the things things that I looked at. And that's what players look at. They look at where are you playing? What kind of organization is it? Are there fans? You know, things like that. So... We, can, we walk into the to uh, Brayhead Arena, and, and I'm looking, and I'm like, this is, this is great. This is better than the Brighton. This is an actual arena. This is better than the Brighton Center. Because the Brighton Center, that was, that, was, uh, that was my benchmark at the time, because that was the closest thing to playing back home that, that, that I had been a part of, in this country anyway. And so, um, so yeah, so um, when, when I came up here, I remember Rob Yannis was here a year before me, and I talked to him about it, and he was like, Listen, it's an incredible, it's an incredible organization. They're very professional. Uh, and you can see that. You can see that through sponsorship. You can see that through things like that. Now, see, things like sponsorship, and I, I paid attention to that because I knew sponsorship was important. If you got sponsorship and you got backing, then you got um, some money. You got some money. Well, so I thought. Um, and I mean, you do. You get, you, I mean, that does help with things like that. But those are the kind of things that you kind of go through as a player when you're trying to make your decisions. And so... All these things were in place. Now, one thing I didn't know, I didn't know anything about the owners at the time, but, uh, but as, I said, as I said before, just from speaking to Rob, he was kind of a, he was kind of a, uh, he kind of swayed me to kind of move towards this direction based off of his, his experiences. And because I'd known him and kind of seen what his setup was like here, um, that's what kind of made me take a completely, a complete different turn uh, about uh, coming up to Glasgow. Uh, how did you find your your first season in Scotland? Uh, you obviously got to uh, the the playoff final and the cup final, uh, finished runners up in both. Let me tell you how I got to Scotland. So basically, what happened was after Sheffield, 
Once again, I had a, I had a job opportunity uh, to go to second division Italy. Everything was done at the last minute. Once again, it fell through. My, I played basketball, as I said before, I played in Germany with Chris Finch. Chris Finch's assistant coach was Torsten Leibnach. Torsten Leibnach then became the head coach of the Glasgow Rocks. Um, his first year, I was available after, because he, he'd known me from, from, from Germany. On his first year, I actually called Torsten after my deal fell through in Italy because I didn't know about the Rocks. And, um, and I was like, listen, I'm available right now. Do you have any spots? Torsten, he didn't have any. He, he had all of his players signed at the time. He then, some kind of way, talked to the owners, Mr. and Mrs. Reed, and he convinced them for the preseason, let's have Sterling come up here and practice with us. And basically, they'll pay me on a weekly basis. So I, I said, yeah, I just want to stay in shape until something else came up for me. So I came up, as I said before, he had players on his way, on, on their way. I got up here. It was a great time. I knew Torsten already. We had a good relationship. Guy, I very much respect, and I owe a lot to him. It, it so happened that as I got up here and I was here for a couple of weeks while they're waiting for the import player to get his visa and things like that, I'm already here. We're practicing. I've been practicing with the team. Now it's, it's a scurry to trying to find a way to get sent home the American player that they were going to send, that they were going to bring over. So they ended up bringing the guy – it was too late. They ended up bringing him over here anyway. So he came over. He played at the University of Washington. I can't remember. Hakeem something. I can't remember his last name. But uh, they brought him over. Um, and, and basically, uh, I think at the time, Torsten knew that I wanted to stay and that, you know, we could come to some kind of agreement. So they ended up just sending the guy right back home, and, and, and I stayed here from there. So that's kind of how I got here. And how did you find that season once you had signed for, for the Rocks? Uh, it was, I guess, quite a successful season, but perhaps tinged with a bit of disappointment as well. Yeah, yeah. So it was, um, um, once again, that's one of the great coaches that I played for, Torsen. He, 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 knew he knew basketball. He knew how to coach. He knew how to break things down. Um, and I, that's what I learned from him is, is – is, like how to kind of break down how things work, break down basketball plays and 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 movements and things like that. Um, I learned that from Torsten. But yeah, I, I, I think we had a once again we had a very good team. We did a very good job of recruiting. That was a disappointing season. I say disappointing. We had we had a couple of good runs, but we just couldn't get over the hump. And and um, yeah, so it was you know I enjoyed my time here. It would have been better had we won. Uh, and, we, and we did come close a couple of times, but just couldn't quite get over it. I remember, I think it was, uh, I can't remember which final it was. We played against the Heat, and that was at the time Brian Ducks. And, that's, and uh, he was a, he gave us so many problems. And, 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 um, and, and he was one of those guys who really, in his short span here in the league, considering he, he really made an impact. He was a very good player. But I remember him and Mike Martin, they, 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 they were a good team down at the and, – and P.J. was – he was a coach at the time, I'm pretty sure, with Guilford, I think it was at the time. So, uh, so yeah, so it was a, uh, a successful but at the same time a, uh, a disappointing season. When you went to Scotland, did you kind of – were you thinking about getting involved in the, in the coaching side? Uh, obviously, in your second season, you would become the, the player coach. Absolutely not. I had no, I had no, 
no intentions of um, not not now, uh, not not not. Well, I say now, not at the time for sure. And it was almost like, see, my, after my first year up here, I, once again, I felt like I was getting my groove back a little bit more. You know, I was playing, I was playing better. I had a good year. Um, I made the all-star team again that year, and, and I was getting back to playing how I was in my first couple of seasons and things like that. So um, I liked it up here. I really enjoyed it. I liked playing for Torsen. It, it, it was a place that I, I could see myself playing for a few years more. And so um, so at the end of that first year, I can remember thinking and, and talking to my family and things like that, saying, like, I really like it here. It is a city. It's quite a bit to do, and that was important to me. My, my life outside of basketball was pretty good. And, and, and I thought the, the organization, the owners were very professional, and I, I really enjoyed working with them. And then, of course, Torsa was here at the time, who we already knew. And so um, from that perspective, a lot of things kind of fit into place. So at the end of my first year, you know, I'm like, listen, I had a, I had a pretty good year. I like to talk to him about a new, uh, uh, another, another, another deal. Um, and then one day Torsen comes to me and says, you know, this was during the season. I'm trying to think how he put it. He basically said, have you ever thought about getting into coaching? And as, as I said before, as this is during the season and things like that, I was like, yeah, I thought about it. I thought about it a lot. I thought about, about it quite a bit. I've always tried to be professional in everything that I've done. I try to put forth a good work ethic, uh, practice hard every day. I try to be a consummate professional, you know, because I think this is a, it's a privilege to be able to do this, to play basketball as a career, and especially for as long as I have. And so that's something I never took for granted and always tried to embrace the, the opportunity as much as I could. And so I did, um, I did try my best to be as professional and as much of a model athlete as I could for not only people outside of the basketball world, but also my own teammates. And so, so from that perspective, um, I, that's why I thought Torsten was talking to me about like, listen, would you ever consider coaching? Because he had a pretty good year. I didn't, I didn't foresee him going anywhere anytime soon. And so, um, so I just kind of downplayed it at the end of the season. He called, he said, listen, we we, the owners and myself, we want to meet with you about next year. I'm like, great, here it is. I'm, I'm, let's, let's, get, let's get a deal done. I'll never forget, we sat in, in Costa Coffee in Brayhead Arena. I'm, I'm sorry, in Brayhead Mall, because it was also a mall attached to that. And they sat me down. I'm ready for this deal. And they're like, listen, we want you to be the player coach next year. And I, I, I was like, man, that's the biggest slap in the face ever. I thought I had a great year this year. You're trying to push me out of playing. And so, and so, uh, so yeah, so I just, so I initially I was just like, it's just complete shock because I didn't think they were thinking in that direction. I wasn't thinking in that direction. And a player, a coach, the only person who had done that was fabulous, Flournoy. And, and I thought he was crazy. I was like, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life is somebody being a player coach. And I never understood it. So after I got over the initial shock of it, I didn't answer immediately. I went and just kind of, I, you know, I, I went back to my, my point of contact, who was my dad. He's, he's, my, he's always my point of contact for anything in life for me. And so um, I wanted to go back and speak to him about it. And one thing that my dad always, um, he always reiterated and was important for him was, 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 was life after basketball. That was in the back of my mind. Also, I was thinking I still had some basketball left in me um, as a player. And so, um, so basically, after some long thought and processing and things like that, they gave me a, a chance to go, go and think about it. I thought about my current situation 
what was happening with myself, the fact that I've got uh, my little boy here and things like that. And, and, and this is an opportunity. Once again, it's an opportunity for me to kind of look at something post-basketball. And so that's basically kind of how it all happened. And, and I eventually said that I will do it. It was a weird thing because it was a, it was a case of I'm now going from these guys' teammates to now I have to kind of reverse this whole process to now being a player coach for these same guys, hopefully, that I played with. That was my intention to kind of try to bring most of them back. But so, yeah, it was some adjustments from that perspective. But that's pretty much how uh, the whole process started. How was it uh, in the early days um, in terms of becoming a player and a coach at the same time? You obviously did it for quite a while, but was it very difficult at first? You know what? As it, when I first started, it was not as it was not as difficult as you would think, and the reason being is because I had a good group of guys that were behind me. The guys that I had in my first year, those were pretty much my my teammates from the year before. I was able to bring the majority of them back, and once again, I, I kind of attribute that to our relationships that we had with each other, that I was able to do so, and and so uh, it made it a a, a pretty easy. I say pretty easy. It made it a, a smoother process for me. Now, I was so naive about so much because I'd never done anything like that. I had never shadowed a coach. I had never done anything as far as looking at basketball from the perspective of a coach and the preparation and things like that. I just didn't, I just was not too familiar with it. So, uh, so yeah, no, it was very, it was, it was, a, it was, um, it was, it came with the challenges and more so just trying to balance me continuing to kind of push myself off the court to be as, as best I could, both physically and mentally, but also being able to prepare us as a team for a season and, and, and from game to game. And so, um, so yeah, no, it's so my first year, I, as I said before, I, I went in kind of naive and, and it was more so, I'm just, I, the way I looked at it is we just don't have a coach because I'm playing. I'm playing. I need you guys to come and play with me. I'll take the timeouts, but but guys, we're in this together. So that was the kind of approach I had at the time, and it was not bad. It was okay, but but you know there was, I think because at the time, the expectation the expectation was different. This was this was this was new for me. This was something new for me. So it was something that I hadn't I hadn't done before. So um, so it was a case of you know I, I I've got to just try to take it in stride. I think the team understood that they were willing to kind of work with me and 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 help me along the way as much as possible. So they were very supportive of me, and that kind of helped out too. Mr. and Mrs. Reed, uh, they were great, incredible throughout my whole time here. Um, but but especially in my first couple of years, they really were very supportive of me and understood the circumstance and things like that. There was obviously a, a lot of uh, transition in terms of off the court, well, the actual court itself um, that the Rocks were, were playing on. Uh, how much did that impact the, the team and, and how, how important eventually was that move to, to the Emirates Arena? We always had a goal and a vision. So our, we, had, we had the ultimate vision of moving to Emirates. Now, there were some steps that we had to take in between. And, and um, in doing so, uh, we moved from Brayhead, we moved into Glasgow city limits because we were gonna be going from the Scottish Rocks to now the Glasgow Rocks because of our partnership that we had with the Glasgow city council at the time. That was one of the things that they wanted to kind of 
embrace into the actual city. Brayhead is actually not based in Glasgow. It's actually outside of the Glasgow city limits. So we had to kind of first of all move in. And in doing so, that was um, the, the options that we had available. We, I can remember us going and exploring a couple of options of possibilities of where we could go. It just so happened it was myself and, and the general manager at the time who was pretty much brand new into this job as well, named Daniel Baverlock. I can remember us going around and looking at different places that we could possibly play. And it just so happened it worked out that Kelvin, Kelvin Hall seemed the, seemed the most suitable place for us. Now, it wasn't perfect by any means, and there was some things, some hurdles that we had to overcome to, to be able to make it work, but it seemed like the most viable place for us to move at the time. Once again, we had a vision of, of, of where we were where we were wanting to go, and um, but it was just the steps that we had to take to get there, and this was one of them, to move from, from Brayhead to Kelvin Hall um, to then uh, inevitably be going to the arena. So, it came with the challenges for sure. I mean, if you when it comes to venues, practice, practice availability, things like that, I can, I can remember Kelvin Hall was an extremely old building. And, and, of course, we're in Scotland, so we're going to get four winners. I can remember so many times where it was so cold as we were practicing that as we're breathing, here comes the steam coming out of our mouths. Our hands are just smoking, especially mine. I don't have any hair. So you can just see this, head, this, this smoke just rising up on my head as we're practicing. I can remember having to extend our warm-up sessions to maybe 20, 20, 20, 25 minutes every day just to make sure that we were as warm as we could because, once again, I'm, I'm trying to keep these guys healthy. I need them on the weekend. We, we can't afford injuries and things like that. So uh, so you, you find ways to kind of get around that. But, but yeah, those were the challenges that you faced on, on a day-to-day basis because we did practice in Kelvin Hall every day. And uh, now it didn't look like it did on game day. But, but we did practice there. And, and so, um, so from that perspective, that was challenging. But you know what? One thing I will say, you know, I liked Kelvin Hall. I thought, I thought Kelvin Hall was a great venue as, as a game venue. Now, it was old and character for sure. But, but I thought between, you know, our general manager, Daniel, and, and, um, and at the time we also had, well, at the time we had a girl named Sarah. Um, who was our general manager, and Daniel was the, the operations manager who became general manager. But they did a great job of, um, of, of trying to set up as best as they could to make it look as professional. And I thought the end product, it, 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 fared, it fared okay. I mean, compared to some other venues, it, was, it, wasn't, the, it wasn't the worst for sure. And so, um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I have a lot of good memories of Kelvin Hall. I really do, and I thought that was a good step for us. And, 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 and um, you know, but as I said before, we all – in our heads had a vision of, of um, what our plan was in the future, which was moving to the Emirates. Well, obviously, um, you, you were involved with the, the Glasgow setup for around a decade plus. What are your kind of highlights and lowlights from that time? I've got a lot of highlights. I mean, I think, I think my relationship with, um, with the owners, my relationship with the general manager, just, just the organization as a whole. I, thought, I think at, at the time, this was one of the best organizations in the league. And, and I still, and I don't know what ownership is like now. I don't know anything, how things, I don't know. I'm not sure now, but I'm speaking on when I was there. Uh, one of, for sure, one of the most professional organizations in the league, without a doubt. And um, just the years of working with that group of people and, and some of the guys that I brought in, I built some very good relationships with. And, and, and just to kind of see the Glasgow, the, the, biggest, the biggest highlight for me was just to see 
how the Glasgow Rocks grew over the years. And I think uh, to be a part of that, that, that meant a lot to me. And I mean, on all aspects, from the community aspect of it, to the basketball aspect of it, to the awareness, to kind of where we are as a, um, where, where they are as, a, uh, as far as venue and things like that. I was all a part of that. And so I can remember when, as the arena was being built, we were a part of that. We were in there looking at the facility. We were, we were giving advice on equipment and, 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 and wood for the floors, all these things like that. So, um, so to see kind of where the, the team has grown, um, that would definitely probably be my biggest highlight. As far as the low light of, 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 of the whole thing, of course, is, is, the, is me not being able to bring the, the organization as a, a, um, any silverware. We got close a couple of times, but, uh, but it, didn't, it didn't happen. And that's definitely, especially as a coach, um, that's something that you want to always try to achieve. And, and, and it gives you that ultimate gratification of all the hard work and the hours that you put in uh, to be able to kind of lift that trophy. And that was something that I was not able to do, and um, and that's something that 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 would probably be um, the thing that I wish I could have done for the organization for sure. Yeah, I think we could. There could probably be a podcast in itself just on your time in Glasgow, but for the purposes of obviously keeping this podcast to a listenable length, um, <laughs> you re- you retired in in 2015. Uh, how was that decision to come to obviously you've been player coaching for for a number of years before that when, by the time 2015 came it, it was not easy but that season before retirement i got to the stage where i didn't enjoy playing anymore now the reason i didn't enjoy playing is because more of my focus was spent on the coaching aspect of it and the combination between the two was becoming so much of a challenge for me. I miss playing basketball. I, I, I really did. I, I love playing basketball. I love the competition aspect of it. But I miss playing free. Not playing under the pretenses that not only am I out here playing, but I've also got to worry about what this guy is doing or trying to keep an eye on this while I'm doing it. To me, that's not, that's not being able to play basketball. When you're playing free and that's your at your own and in, in your own self playing that that that's the enjoyment of it. And so, by the time to 2015 came, I was at the stage where you know I felt number one, my body had taken a, a pound. I've been playing for a long time, and and I think I wanted to be able to walk away, being able to actual actually walk. Um, and so uh, I think I could feel it in my body where it was becoming more difficult for me to kind of grind on a day-to-day basis and do the long road trips and getting off the bus and playing the game while managing the team, things like that. And so, so it was that aspect of it. And then I wanted to try the best, my best to, for the team. I think it was the best move for the team for me to have more of a focus on the sideline as opposed to trying to do both. Um, I think I'd had enough time I've experimented with the player coach aspect of it. I wanted to try something else to see uh, what impact that made. And so, um, so from that perspective, that those, those two things kind of attributed uh, to me uh, kind of going through the process of um, retiring and, and, and moving on to something else, just because I just thought, I mean, I, I, had, I had burned my time through. Okay. So I've done enough as far as my time uh, of playing. I, I felt like I got a lot of years in and I thought that was enough for me. Uh, and I was I was okay to walk away from it at the time too, and, and just kind of focus solely on the coaching. Was it strange? Strange in many ways, obviously still being involved with the team in a coaching capacity, but but not playing. 
Uh, and was there any point where you thought about maybe uh, donning a jersey once again? Uh, it was it was my first coaching game. That was weird. It, it was a little bit weird for me to walk out um, as a coach as opposed to to uh, a player and coach uh, because you know it was just like I almost didn't know what to do with myself. You know because I had all of this because before the game my my schedule used to be pretty busy. Not only was I <laughs> by the end of it was I the player and the coach, but I was also I was almost also like the manager of the team. Everything regarding the team, I mean, especially on the roads and things like that, that was all me, you know, whether it was, it, was, um, it was preparing for the game. I had to get my board ready for the game. I had to make sure that the, that the players' uniforms were, were, were passed out, water bottles filled. I mean, I was doing everything. You know, I, I literally had to do everything at the time. And so, so, yeah, so from that perspective, I go from that to now just uh, focus solely on the coaching um, aspect of it. That, that has made uh, – that, that just, I just didn't know what to do with all this time before the game. But, but no, it, was, it, it, it didn't take me long to kind of get out of that mode. But it, initially it was, diff- it, was uh, it was just weird. How did your time uh, with the Rocks come to an end? Uh, and, and how far in advance did you know about that decision? After – when I left the Rocks, I did an interview just kind of talking about the whole thing. Now, um, of course, everybody knows the, the Rocks, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Reed, who has spent numer- so many years with the team, they got to the stage where they were, they were ready to kind of take a step back, completely understand it, and they were deserving of that option for sure. Um, and so um, I did know that uh, Mr. Reed was looking for buyers uh, for the team. And um, at the time, I did meet with the new owner. Um, and, and so um, we met a couple of times and things like that and kind of just got an idea of, about each other and <clears throat> how that happened. Now, when it came to me knowing how far in advance that I know that I was not going to be there, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know that, I, um, that, they, that, that the new owner was not going to resign me. Now, one thing I did... Have, I, had an, I had an inkling. I, I, I wasn't sure now because, see, what happened was Mr. Reed, he wanted, as I said before, very good people. They've always been uh, very close to me. But once he told me he had found, found a buyer for the team, one of his first priorities that he wanted to do was to get a new contract signed for me. So basically, he was just saying, like, listen, we need to get it. Let's get our contract together as before I, I sell the team, because he was just trying to look out for my benefit. For me, at the time, I was at a, at a stage in my life where I was doing some thinking myself on um, whether the right thing to do for me was to continue coaching or kind of step away. After you've been with a team for so long, you've got players that you've been around for so long, your message is not the same. Your message is not the same. So when you coach guys for as long as I did with, um, with this team and, and, and some of these guys I coached for, I, either I played with them or they were, I was their player coach or their coach. But I, some of these guys I've been on a long journey with and they were important pieces. But, but as time goes on, and this is with any coaching job, it's, it's very difficult for your message to have the same potency that it once did. And so that always played in the back of my mind that, I, you know, I, the option, the, the possibility that it may be time for me to kind of step away, not from coaching as, as a whole, but just from the organization, just based on kind of how things have gone and on the fact that of, of, of kind of, you know, the personnel that was here. And so 
Um, so I, me knowing that there were going to be there's going to be new ownership, what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to re-sign a deal where I was not the choice of the owner. That that's that's just not me. If 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 it's, if if I, I, I'm not one of these guys who want to be here off of default. And so uh, for that perspective, I did not, um, I just kind of held off on, on getting a contract done. Um, and then, so eventually as time went on, um, once, the, once the turnover happened or the changeover happened of owners, um, I did speak to the current owner and, and we kind of spoke about the future and things like that. And kind of seemed like from what we were talking about, he was, uh, he was talking about moving forward in, in the future and things like that. Um, so, you know, from my perspective, I'm thinking, you know, yeah, possibly this is going to happen uh, moving forward. Uh, but I, once again, I'll wait to see if he's the initiator to make this happen or, or, or otherwise. And it never happened. And so um, after the um, the last game of the season, I, I pretty much found out the next day. And, and you know, so um, that's pretty much how that kind of panned out for me there. Do you miss it? Obviously, it's uh, somewhere where you spent, I guess, maybe a quarter of your life working. I miss the organization. I miss the organization that I that I know. I definitely miss that. You know, I had I've got great relationships with people who who um, who I will always who I always have a place with me in my life, and so um, I do miss that aspect of it. As far as as the the coaching and the basketball aspect of it. Um, Tom, I, I was I, I started to get to the stage where I was becoming burnt out. I, I really did. I started feeling that way, um, and and you know losing losing is not fun, and and, lo- and 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 it really wears you out. It really does mentally. And when I say losing, when I'm coming out of a season empty-handed, that to me that's what I'm referring to. You know, we had some winning seasons and things like that, but but you know it, it gets to a stage where. And, and just with any professional sports, you know, uh, silverware is basically, that's your benchmark. And, and, that's, and that's what you're judged off of. And so uh, from that perspective, I was, I was becoming burned out. And, it was, and I, I felt like uh, as far as my health is concerned, it started impacting that. And so, um, so for that reason, I, you know, it was almost, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily miss uh, coaching in that capacity, I, I really don't. I think I, I think it was time. Uh, I wanted to spend more time with my family, which I'm, which I really enjoy. I'm very much a family guy. I've never been. I'm not that guy to you know hang out with a whole lot of people. And to be honest, I, I'm not great at keeping in touch with people. You know, and I can hold my hands up with that. Now I've got a. I've met a lot of very good people over my time, and I have a a, a, a lot of very close people that I consider uh, close in my, in my life. But, but I just, I just really, my focus is always and will always be on my family. And, 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 you know, and so, um, so this is, this, this, this change has given me a different perspective on life and, and, and on the important things. And I've just enjoyed raising my kids and, and, and just spending time with the family. Yeah. My, my next question was going to be, uh, what are you up to now? Are you still based in Scotland? Yeah, I'm still based in Scotland. So, so at the minute, I um, I I I work for uh, Sky TV, um, and then I also I have started a I've started a public speaking business. So I, I do business coaching, uh, motivational speaking, and I've also started a basketball academy here. 
which is more so geared on the younger generation. So I'm, t- I'm, I'm coaching younger kids anywhere from eight to, uh, eight to 16 years old. So yeah, so I do that. Um, and, and as I said before, my speaking, is, my speaking events and things like that is what I, um, I really enjoy. Um, I like telling stories. I like talking. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but um, I do enjoy speaking and things like that. And so, uh, so yeah, so I just, uh, with my speaking, I just basically, I'm just correlating my life experiences with basketball to, to any business concept and any business and what they're doing. And I think there's so many correlations that you learn. As I told you before, I, I studied business and communications when I was at uh, Tulane University. And so as I went through my career, um, as I got older, um, I vet more of my veteran years, I understood the business aspect of professional sports and, and what that entailed. And so, um, so what I do now is, is kind of just, you know, as I said before, correlate the, the, the difference but, or the similarities between what happens in sport and, and, and how that can, can transition over to any business that you have. The things that I speak to players about in a locker room I can go into front of any company and speak to them in the same way and it, it will have the same impact, you know, because especially in this day and age, everything is about team and, and motivation and success and all these things like that. And so, um, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of my focus right now. Uh, at the end of every podcast episode, uh, we ask people to select an all-time five of players they've either played with or coached. Is that something that you would be able to do? I can I can try, I, I can I can try to do that. What I'm going to do, I'm, I'm going to think about guys who I felt gave me problems, and and so I would kind of base it off of that, and who I feel like, listen, they really made an impact in the league. A very good player um, in the league, and um, and that was that was, and I mentioned him already in the podcast previously before, and that was Lenard Stewart. I thought Lenard Stewart was a he was a incredible big man, especially for this league. His athleticism. Uh, his footwork, his quickness—that was the biggest thing. Um, I thought, yeah, he really, he really stood out to me as as a guy who was a who was a who was a good player. So I put him at the five position. Uh, at the four position, there's a guy that played for Brighton and he played for London Towers, named uh, Kendrick Warren. Kendrick Warren, I liked him. Now him and him and 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 uh, Leonard are kind of interchangeable. But I would say I'll put Kendrick Warren at the four just because Kendrick could shoot the ball a little bit. Leonard, that was not his thing whatsoever. But, but, uh, but Kendrick could shoot the ball a little bit. He could put the ball on the floor. He was good around the basket. He kind of he had a similar game to me who could kind of play inside and out. And so, uh, so, yeah, he used to be a difficult one to deal with too. Another guy I would have to say is Charles Smith. Charles Smith, we had a lot of battles over the years. And and, and, you know, I think Charles' name speaks for itself of what kind of player he was and just a pure scorer. I mean, and that's one thing about him, deceivingly quick, for his, especially for his size. And listen, he's just deceiving based off of, his, of, of the way he looks alone. You wouldn't think if, if Charles Smith walks into a gym, then listen, he's going to be one of the most dominant players in there. But, but no, he was, he, he was always um, at the top of his game, even at the end of his career. You know, you see, he kind of stayed on that, that, that same path. So you got to put him in there. Uh, one guy that I played with and played against who um, at the two position that I, that I really liked, that was uh, Ralph Blaylock. He played for Leicester, but he played with me in Brighton. Ralph, actually, he played with me in London, at, in, in the London Towers, too, that year I was there. We had a good team, but he was one of the guys that was there, too. Uh, but Ralph, 
He was so shifty. Ralph was one of these uh, guys who was deceivingly quick. If you look at him, you wouldn't say, listen, this guy, he's quick and he can play. But no, Ralph Blaylock, he always stood out to me as a, as a, a good player, good guy too, real good guy. And then at the point guard, I've got a, I've, I've got two guys that I think I can't I can't say one without the other, but I would have to say Rob Yanders or EJ Harrison. Both of those guys to me, uh, they they both stand out. Rob was an incredible point guard. He's, I think he's one of the best point guards ever to come through the BBL. And then um, EJ Harrison once again. I think EJ was underrated. I think he was one of the most underrated players uh, to come through the league. I think he was incredible as far as a point guard, his shooting ability. Uh, he had a good first step. Um, and, and things like that. So, um, so yeah, so that would, that would probably be my, my top five right there. Or I, I actually gave you six, I think, because I gave you two with, with, with the point guard. That was our interview with Sterling Davis. Thank you very much for your time, Sterling. Uh, we do have some more podcasts coming up over the next few days and weeks. Uh, we're going to be speaking to former England coach Laszlo Nemeth about his career in basketball. Uh, we're going to hopefully speak to former GB under-20 coach Doug Leitner and also maybe NBA legend Hakeem Olujuwon. Um, who is living in Birmingham. Uh, so that should be pretty interesting as well. To keep up to date, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcast, and feel free to leave us a nice review.